Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Brady. Uh, he is a managing director and head of taxable fixed income for Thornburg Investment Management. Uh, he is also the author of a new book called Income Investing, an Intelligent Approach to Profiting from Bonds, Stocks, and Money Markets. Welcome to the show, Jason. Uh, good to be here. Just start a little bit with your background and what you've been doing uh, leading into your position at Thornburg. Sure. Well, um, I took a very uh, typical approach to money management. I got a degree in English literature and uh, went into an English literature PhD program uh, straight out of college. Uh, from there, uh, started a magazine and, and was running a business and realized I didn't know what I was doing running a business. So I made the giant mental leap of going to business school uh, where I got into finance. Um, ended up working at Lehman Brothers, uh, Fidelity Investments, uh, a large Benelux bank, uh, Fortis, and about six years ago came to Thornburg. And tell people a little bit about Thornburg who might not be familiar with it. What kind of firm is it? What kind of services do they offer? Sure. Um, it's an $80 billion asset manager. Uh, we are primarily a, a mutual fund or fund manager. So managing, we have literally millions of, of shareholders that, that put money into our mutual funds, but we also have institutional uh, institutional asset base. Um, we invest globally, and our, most of our mandates and our strategies are, are very flexible. So we're trying to take advantage of um, various uh, relative value opportunities all over the world in, in the various, within the various mandates of each particular strategy. One fund that you manage particularly is the Thornburg Investment Income Builder Fund. What, what is the mandate of that fund, and how does that one work? Sure. Well, that's a great example of what I'm talking about. Um, the three goals of that fund are as follows. One, everybody wants uh, things to go up, their prices to go up. So we have capital appreciation as one goal. Uh, another goal is good current income. Everybody likes uh, getting a check in the mail, so current income. But uh, probably the, the unusual one is growing income over time. So what we're trying to do there is uh, over time, you can't do it continuously, but over time provide our shareholders with more dividends per share. Uh, which tends to mean that if you buy a, if you buy the portfolio today, and which yields something like six percent, and we're able over time, say over the next five years, to grow it slowly, your yield on your original cost will grow. Um, that can solve a number of different problems, uh, from extended retirements uh, to endowment spending to all kinds of things where you know longer term income uh, is important, and in particular the growth in that income. So let's kind of take a look at the overall income market now. Uh, people are in a pretty big dilemma in that uh, they want income, and the usual safe alternative, risk-free alternatives, treasury bills, CDs, money market funds, savings accounts are pretty much at zero, and it looks like they're going to stay at zero for quite a while with what the Federal Reserve is doing. So it's almost forcing people to take risks they don't particularly feel comfortable with. How does one deal with that environment? Uh, when you want higher uh, yield, but don't particularly want to take much more risk. Yeah, it's an enormous challenge. And in fact, uh, what you're seeing is those less risky, quote-unquote, parts of the market, uh, because the yields that they're providing are actually below the level of inflation, um, it's actually degrading your purchasing power. So in other words, it's, it's bad enough that your money market account yields zero, uh, what's actually worse is that if inflation is something between one and a half and two percent, 
your actual real return is negative one and a half to two percent. Um, so, as you say, most people are dealing with that by taking on more and more risk, uh, which is very concerning. Uh, I think that's that's a real problem. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about the investment income builder, uh, which we mentioned earlier, is that it is there's there's significant exposure to global stocks. So it's not a replacement for a bond fund at all or a bond investment at all. It's but it's getting income from your stock allocation. So if someone has stocks and bonds as an allocation, you know, rather than continuing to reach further and further um, into lower and lower quality or into uh, more and more risky fixed income, if they're getting income from their stock portion, it allows them to keep a sensible allocation within the fixed income portion of, the, of their of their portfolio. Do you think the Fed is doing the right thing by keeping interest rates at uh, pretty much zero and saying they're going to be doing that for several years going forward? Well, first of all, unfortunately or unfortunately, it doesn't really matter if I think it's right. Uh, the question is more if they're going to continue to do it. I don't get to live in a world where everything happens according to what I think is right. But So the real answer to your question is no, I don't think it's right. But at the same time, they're going to keep doing it. So whether I think it's right or not doesn't really matter as to how I have to, to, to deal with that world. Um, what we're really seeing is a dramatic uh, shift or, or emphasis in policymaking uh, towards folks that are in debt, um, to include the U.S. government, and away from folks who are savers. Um, so that's, since most of my shareholders, and, and including myself, uh, are savers, that's, that's troubling and difficult for me. Um, I, I think that if, if you're on the, the Federal Reserve Board and you're looking at the world with the dual mandate that the Fed has, you're doing a pretty good job, um, or you're doing at least the appropriate policy, which is to say the Fed has only two mandates. Um, keep unemployment at a at a reasonably low level, right? That's one, and monetary stability would be another, which they define as inflation around more or less at 2%. So inflation's right at their st- stability level. Uh, unemployment is much higher than they consider to be reasonable. So as a result, they're trying to do as much stimulus as they as they possibly can. Um, if I had only two things I was being judged on, uh, then I guess I would sort of operate the same way. I just think that there are secondary and tertiary effects which are starting to be uh, much more problematic um, and much and ultimately will have uh, large consequences for financial stability. So, what are some of those effects? You're, you're worried about building up inflationary pressures in the future. Um, that's one. So the trouble, the reason why a bunch of the money, the monetary uh, stimulus has not really gone into the real economy is in part because of transmission mechanisms. One of them is credit. Uh, so that would be banks not lending would be the kind of shorthand for that, although it's more complicated than that. Really, what I believe is happening is that individuals are, are taking down leverage. So if you take down leverage, even if the bank gives you attractive terms, you're not really going to take it. I, I have spoken to a huge number of financial professionals and individuals over the last couple of years who have paid down debt on their house. Right? They've paid down their mortgage. And I, I would imagine some of your listeners have done the same thing over the last couple of years, even though it's tax inefficient to do so. And the reason is they just don't want that much debt. So if you're sitting in that environment where there's a lot of leverage and it's coming down, you know, there's not a whole lot the bank can do about it. Uh, so so that's that's one sort of dramatic effect here. 
And then, so, so paying them, so the deleveraging makes it harder for them. So even if they're putting out money at a very cheap rate, people aren't willing to take it, is what you're saying. So they can't get some kind of velocity moving in the economy. Right. So you're, 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 sh- you're shorthanding to the, that other piece, which is velocity. So when, when money is available to be lent, but it's not being borrowed, uh, velocity of money, um, decreases. And there's some question as to how quickly uh, that could increase. So the inflationary pressures that are building up uh, that, that are possible, uh, I'm not sure that they actually are building up, but, but if, if indeed they are, they're building up in the sense that there's a tremendous amount of money available, but the velocity of the money is very low. And if velocity of money increases, then what you could get is inflation. That, that's, that's the way the theory goes anyway. So what some would say is that uh, there is inflation coming, that there's a huge amount of money that's been printed, in effect, and, and put out through the quantitative easing program, and it doesn't take much to change velocity, and you get fast inflation quickly. That's hard for the Fed to put the genie back in the bottle once it gets going. Do you agree with that? That is that's a concern, and certainly something I'm concerned about. Um, ultimately, though, I, I just don't believe that's a likely scenario in this sort of short to medium term. Um, as somebody who deals with fixed income instruments and, and certainly income instruments generally all day long, I can tell you that is something that I'm very afraid of. Uh, so I'm 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 trying to be very vigilant around it. Uh, at the same time, you know, if you if you look at the force of delevering, uh, that that decrease in in desire to borrow, um, I think that is tremendously problematic for you know generating ter- terrific growth, and is certainly also a headwind for uh, massive growth and, and velocity of money. So uh, the trouble is, if you get to the point where people feel like they have the capacity to borrow again, and they start to do instead of doing calculations like, hey, you know, I don't want to own, I don't want to have this much debt on my house or this much this big a mortgage, they instead say, well, geez, mortgage rates are so low. I should borrow as much as I can. You know, when, when you feel that shift occurring, that's when, at the same time, velocity of money will likely be increasing. And as you say, it's hard for the Fed to reverse that dramatically. They can. They have tools, but it's hard to do. But you're not expecting that change in mindset to happen anytime soon. I don't. I don't. And, and if, if I could show you a chart of long-term overall debt to GDP, and overall debt I mean government debt, corporate, both financial and non-financial, and household debt, um, we're at very, very high levels and only slowly declining. Um, so the last time we were at levels that were this high or close to this high uh, was in the early 30s. Um, we spent about a decade uh, making that leverage less before the U.S. government, as one component of that, started to raise its leverage, obviously, in spending for World War II. But we spent the decade of the Great Depression uh, basically delevering and getting our balance sheet in order. I mean, most of the increase in debt lately has been government debt, not as much corporate or individual debt. Is that right? That's what most of the growth is? In fact, um, government debt has more or less uh, offset one for one the decline in corporate and individual debt. Yeah. Okay, very good. It's 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 a very important dynamic relative to, you know, potential for growth and where it could come from and, and who has the capacity to take on more debt. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is Jason Brady. Uh, he is a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at Thornburg Investment Management. He's just authored a new book called Income Investing, an Intelligent Approach to Profiting from Stocks, Bonds, and Money Markets. We'll be back after this. 
up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you and your family in debt? Today, over 40% of American households are spending more than they make. And that means our society is getting deeper and deeper in debt. Escape the Debt Trap with host and attorney Kenneth Neely is here to help you avoid the problems involved with debt, including rebuilding credit, filing bankruptcy, short-selling your home, resolving IRS tax problems, and much more. Escape the Debt Trap airs live every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Brady. He's a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at Thornburg Investment Management. He also is the author of a new book called Income Investing, Intelligent Approach to Profiting from Stocks, Bonds, and Money Markets, published by McGraw-Hill. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Oh, great. Good to be here. You have a, a chapter in the book on all the different kinds of bonds and the pros and cons of them. So let's kind of take a look at those uh, a little bit. First of all, you start about credit ratings and how important credit ratings are for b- different uh, bonds. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the ratings agencies lately, particularly as they rated uh, mortgage-backed securities, the they were AAA and they turned turn out to be so AAA. How have things changed with the credit rating agencies today, and, and what kind of credence should people put on their credit ratings? Well, I'm not sure that they've actually changed a whole lot. Um, I think that some of the significant problems uh, with credit ratings, as, as you talk about, is uh, people investing in what they thought were kind of gilt-edged or AAA securities and them turning out to be uh, much riskier and, and, and taking sustaining uh, losses that they did not uh, expect or invest uh, with the expectation of, of having. So I think today you have some of the same issues, uh, just in that credit rating agencies are no um, less fallible today than they were five years ago. I think what's good is that the marketplace uh, has recognized this problem and has recognized that rating agencies are just another opinion and that 
is there's nothing magical about them. And though they were held up to be uh, opinions without conflict, in fact, there may be some conflict. So I'm happy to to be in a world where credit ratings are no longer considered to be kind of the definitive source or definitive opinion on an individual security. So do you always rely on a credit rating when you're buying a, a fixed income issue of some kind? Uh, almost never. In fact, I'd say never, except for the fact that it is another opinion. So I'm happy to see another opinion and and read about it, and and perhaps the credit uh, analyst may come up with something that I hadn't thought of, and I'm always happy to to, to have more information rather than less. But I, I guess say, the, the, the uh, argument against them is that their credit ratings are bought by the issuers, and therefore there's a kind of a natural inclination not to bite the hand that feeds you, and therefore they're not going to be as critical as they would be if the ratings were bought by the uh, investor. Is that is that ever possible to be changed? Um, you know, the, a lot of folks have come up with an idea of of independently funded or funded by um, funded by the investors, but it's it's pretty tough. Um, it's pretty difficult to set up a structure whereby investors would pay. Um, I guess you could do it uh, with significant regulation in the form of taxes, etc. But I think even if you did that, um, you're not going to get you're not going to get uh, infallible ratings. You're going to get people making mistakes. Um, I think the the problem that you describe is one that was much worse in the form of in, in the asset back market when when banks could change the security, could change the way it was structured to fit uh, within a rating agency model and could kind of game the system. And it's a little less has been a little less of a problem in say corporate bonds where. Uh, you have a situation that you know, you're really just looking at the company's creditworthiness, and there's less gaming going on, and so there's less sort of conflict of interest. Uh, Has in that changed because of, of Dodd-Frank? Are there ways to change so that they can't game the system as much in the asset-backed area? Uh, frankly, it really hasn't. Um, uh, the only thing that's changed is there's a lot more um, light being shown on the process, um, much more transparency, but but honestly, the the overall system has not changed that much. Now you talk about uh, Treasury securities, government bonds, uh, U.S. Treasuries, and, and agencies. You've got extremely low rates on Treasuries today, and some would argue you just have to be crazy to be tying up your money for ten years at one and a half percent on a long Treasury, something like that. You just, you're not, as you say, not even staying ahead of inflation. So is this something you should be avoiding? Or I mean, even though they're extremely popular, what, what is the deal now with long-term treasuries? I am personally avoiding them and, and avoiding them within the funds that I manage uh, because I, I don't really enjoy the process of slowly losing money any more than I enjoy the process of quickly losing it. And, and that's more or less what you're signing up for when you buy treasuries. Um, the treasury market is... Um, for lack of a better word, of a manipulated market. It is the, a tremendous amount of the new issuance of treasuries and tremendous portion of the treasury market is being bought by um, actors in the market, specifically central banks, uh, that are acting with that not, not in a non-economic fashion. In other words, I'm trying to make money for my shareholders. And the Fed is not trying to make money on its holdings. It's trying to engineer an economic outcome. So in a market that is being manipulated in that way, um, it's very hard for me to see value um, just being just 
buying and holding the security on a, a sort of risk-adjusted basis. I can imagine scenarios where it's an okay thing to hold, and certainly it can be a part of a much broader uh, asset allocation or portfolio, but in and of itself, it is not an interesting set of securities. Uh, if there's no resolution of the fiscal cliff, do you think that the U.S. Treasury uh, rating will be downgraded from where it is now, and will that have a negative impact on the Treasury market? I think if the fiscal cliff, you know, first of all, there's been a lot of discussions more of a fiscal slope or off-ramp, but, but if, we're, if we're not coming to a resolution um, with a number of our fiscal issues, then I think that it's likely that the Treasury gets downgraded and that they go up in value. The, the, the bonds go up in value? Correct. <laughs> okay. So maybe we should have more downgrades, I suppose. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. So far it's worked. Um, I believe, you know, a year and a half ago we had that first step where uh, S&P downgraded uh, to AA plus and uh, treasuries gained in value pretty dramatically. Um, you, know, you know, the market doesn't always follow. In fact, often it doesn't follow the sort of expected path. And really what you're seeing is if, if you have – a much less certain financial environment or, or fiscal environment, uh, people are going to try to own as much certainty as they can. And even if we want to call U.S. Treasury credit quality into question, which I'm not sure is really that valuable, um, on a relative basis, it's a it's a safe haven. It's it's basically the mattress, if you will. What do you think is going to happen in the upcoming uh, debt ceiling debate? We're going to reach the 16.4 pretty soon, 16.4 trillion. Is it going to be another circus, or is it going to go easier this time? Uh, I think it's easy to bet on the circus, so I will. Um, you know, it, it's good that you bring that up. I think it's more relevant uh, and more as, more likely to cause troubles um, in the short to medium term than you know, the fiscal cliff, if only because it's sort of a binary outcome. Either, you know, the debt ceiling gets extended or it doesn't, and therefore um, there's much more um, – much more time-sensitive nature to the to the issue. I, I think ultimately, of, of course, we extend um, uh, or expand the debt ceiling, but it's going to be it's going to lay bare all the stuff that we suspect is going to occur with the fiscal cliff debate, which is you know somewhat irreconcilable differences between um, the two parties and the the idea that it's it's very difficult to come to compromises because any compromise is really distasteful to everyone. Um, and that's just a function of the choices that we have in front of us, none of which are tremendously palatable. So what is your prediction for how the fiscal cliff situation will be dealt with? Will we go over the cliff or will we have a major compromise or a minor compromise? What's your expectation? I just I think it's likely to be a minor compromise, likely to be an extension, um, likely to be let's debate this more fully at another time. Uh, where you know a few things that that folks can agree on uh, occur, uh, maybe a few things that folks can agree on uh, don't occur, but by and large, it's sort of a extension of the of process and, and not a resolution. So, can the can be kicked down the road forever? Is there never a day of reckoning? And just keep going forever, and then we can have. Twenty you know, I, trillion, thirty trillion, fifty trillion—never matters. Yeah, when does know, it start a, mattering? I have a puritanical uh, aversion to, to that scenario, um, but maybe it still can happen. Um, I, I would, I would point out the resolution that we saw for high government uh, debt to GDP in the '40s, post World War II, which was um, a fixed yield curve. Uh, at relatively low rates, uh, well below the level of inflation, and effectively a repair of, go of the government balance sheet via 
um, moderate, not hyperinflation to any degree, but moderate to high inflation and very low rates. So I, I feel that's sort of where we are today anyway. Um, that's what we're engineering today anyway. Uh, so yes, you can continue to kick it down the road. It doesn't mean that there aren't significant losers and significant winners. It's just not immediately clear, and policymakers or, or politicians don't have to, to, uh, to take blame for it. Mm-hmm. You also talk in your book about uh, other sovereign government bonds. What is the attraction of other sovereigns today compared to U.S. Treasuries? Well, you know, some some are maybe more attractive from a credit standpoint, and some are less attractive. Um, I would suggest that some peripheral European governments have much more challenges and are in a much worse place than than the U.S. Um, uh, by the same token, a number of quote unquote emerging market uh, governments are in a much better uh, fiscal position than the U.S. So, so what would be some of those countries that are in better position than the U.S. that you would be buying a sovereign bonds in? Um, you know, frankly, not so much emerging, but Australia is in great position. Uh, lots of countries in Asia, uh, Indonesia is in a wonderful uh, financial position. The Philippines are in uh, improving financial position. Um, Brazil's in a good uh, current position, although it's de- deteriorating somewhat. Uh, but a lot of names that you might have heard uh, in the past as as challenged uh, are in a relatively good position vis-a-vis, you know, the U.S. So the last 15 years, you've really seen a reversal in, in, in balance sheet quality. So is this a play on their currencies as well? The U.S. dollar will depreciate against those currencies of those countries, the stronger countries you just mentioned? In fact, I think um, what the Fed is partly trying to engineer is the U.S. dollar uh, declining against almost every currency. Um, unfortunately, for the Federal Reserve and for various policymakers in the U.S., uh, they're not the only ones trying to engineer that that game. So uh, in Europe, same thing. Um, in fact, even the Brazilians are trying to engineer um, some relative weakening of their currency uh, to make sure that that their export markets re- remain competitive. So uh, you know, in this world, it seems as though we're involved in uh, what some would have would term competitive devaluation. A race to the bottom, they call it, right? Exactly. <laughs> Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Brady. He's a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at the Thornburg Investment Management Company. And his new book is called Income Investing. We'll be back after this. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. 
Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Brady. Uh, He's a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at the Thornburg Investment Management Company and author of a new book called Income Investing. Welcome back to the show, Jason. It's terrific to be here. Is there a website for Thornburg, and also is there a website related to the book that people can find out more about it? Um, with regard to Thornburg, yes, it's it's pretty simple stuff actually. Uh, the website is www.thornburg.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-B-U-R-G.com. Um, so we have uh, a website there which individual investors and investment professionals can can look at the various offerings, look at prospectuses, look at market commentary, et cetera, and, and get a sense of our offerings. Um, with regard to the book, uh, sadly, no, there's no dedicated website. Uh, I believe it's a, it's easily available, certainly on Amazon.com and, and any any major bookseller. Um, but but there's no dedicated website. I I wrote this in kind of my quote unquote spare time between managing a bunch of different portfolios. So I haven't done a. This is this is the extent of my marketing effort. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. You have a whole area on municipal bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, and on one hand, there it's a positive situation, and that. They have tax-free income, which might become more valuable if tax rates go up. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there have been these uh, defaults at San Bernardino and uh, Harrisburg and other places. What is your evaluation of the attractiveness of municipal bonds in today's market? Sure. Well, you have to keep in mind with municipal bonds that they are a market that's created by tax law. So it is a relatively small portion of the overall fixed income universe it's about a 3 trillion dollar market in a, about a 65 trillion dollar overall overall marketplace so it's kind of a niche market and exists because um there's federal state and and on occasion local tax exemptions uh again the credits that you're looking at in each case are municipalities uh again they can be states uh, they can be uh, local local governments or they can be projects of of any of the above so it's a pretty specialized world, um, and it is its value is very large is very largely dependent on, as you mentioned, uh, each individual's tax rate. So if if folks have a very high tax rate, it's more likely that municipal bonds are attractive to them. And if uh, you know an un, a non-taxable entity like maybe a pension fund, etc., um, or for people thinks in people's 401k where you have significant tax advantage, it's obviously not the place for municipal bonds. So. With all that said, um, I think today 
municipal bonds uh, can offer some value. The, the folks who, who run the municipal department here sit about 10 feet away from me. We chat on chat frequently, and uh, there's there's definitely places to go. But all in, there's been a dramatic rush towards municipal bonds as a relative safe haven, and again with this with a concern of higher taxes has has really increased prices quite a lot. So is the concern about default? I mean, a year or so ago there was all this talk of hundreds of municipal defaults, and this is going to be a complete disaster. That hasn't really worked out. Is that still in our future? I don't believe it is. Uh, I think when you saw municipal bond prices go down, this would be, again, at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, there was a, a significant amount, a significant change in interest rates, in risk-free interest rates. So treasury prices went down and municipal bond prices went down. And what I think uh, is important to understand about municipals is they have, they're the longest duration asset, sub-asset class within fixed income. So there's there's a huge incentive for municipalities to to have very long dated financing, and so a lot of municipal bond issuers issue 30-year bonds or, or very long bonds. So as a result, they're the most affected by changes in rates. Um, so when when you had rates rise on Treasuries at the end of 2010, beginning of 11, what you saw was also municipal bonds um, went went had had their rates rise and therefore had their prices go lower. In fact, the amount that municipal bonds went down was exactly the same as you would expect, given their interest rate exposure, given their duration. So it, it wasn't that, fear of default that was making them I, go down as, as much as it was the interest rates going up? Perhaps I am alone in believing this, but I, I, it strikes me as not a coincidence that the math works out so neatly. I think what we what we did, and, and in that moment, by the way, we had stock prices going up. We had high-yield fixed income uh, doing much better. We had spreads on corporate bonds going lower. We had a broadly more positive kind of outlook on the on the world. So why would we? Why would municipals be such an exception? Well, there was a report uh, by one particular individual that kind of highlighted, you know, maybe some some concerns about municipalities. But really, it was a really long duration asset class that was, in general, going down because long duration, high quality bonds were going down. Um, should there be concerns about defaults? Relatively sure. You know, there once once you remove insurance from market, which is what we've seen, you've got a bunch of very diverse issuers, um, very small issuers. And uh, uh, some of those are not going to do so well. But overall, the default uh, frequency and default concerns, I think, are overblown. Why did the municipal bond insurance companies like FGHC and MBIA, um, you know, as you said, had their demise? It seemed like they were doing well for a long time. Why did they not uh, remain? Well, they did not stick with the uh, business of insuring municipalities. Uh, they moved into also, also insuring asset-backed securities of a bunch of different types. And what you saw in 2007, 2008 was that asset-backed securities or the mortgages, let's take subprime as an example. Um, subprime mortgages, instead of being not correlated because they're in different geographies and everybody always said, oh, real estate's a local market, they obviously turned out to be very correlated. So all kinds of subprime bonds uh, went down a bunch. So the AAA securities we referenced earlier in the show it turned out to be uh, defaulted, and a whole bunch of people lost a bunch of money, including the folks, uh, MBIA as an example, who insured those bonds. They didn't take a big loss on their muni portfolio. They took a big loss on their asset-backed portfolio. Now, that's not to say that the business of insuring bonds is a good business no matter what you're insuring. Um, it could be the fact that at some point in the future, 
um, municipal bonds turn out to be quite correlated and they, they all have issues altogether. I think the lesson there is not, you know, which asset class they were, they were trying to protect. The lesson is, you know, running one kind of insurance over and over and over again, you're either going to do just fine uh, until the day when they all go bad altogether and then the insurance is really worth nothing in the first place. So why hasn't anybody else picked up um, and just stick to the knitting of insuring municipal bonds since the market would like to have insurance? Well, some have tried. Um, uh, Warren Buffett tried to get into the business briefly, and a, a few others are sort of making an attempt at it. But what I think people are looking at and realizing is, given that so many insurance municipal bond insurers uh, went bankrupt or went or had significant issues, they're really discounting the value of the insurance anyway. Um, they're realizing that the insurer is more likely to go under than the, the municipal than the insured bond. So why pay for the insurance? It's not really adding any value. Yeah. Okay, the next area you talk about is corporate bonds, and in evaluating a corporate bond, you talk about the four C's. Uh, what are the four C's in evaluating corporate bonds? Yeah, the, the, the context is one that's really taken from, um, from credit training for banks, right? So a lot of folks look at, a lot of for, uh, folks start at a, a bank when, they, when they're looking at, at credits, and they, they basically go through the the four C's terminology. So it's sort of a very old school way of looking at credit. Uh, but those four C's are character. So that's basically when you're looking at, at uh, lending money to someone, you really look at a, their ability to pay and their willingness to pay. They can be able to pay but not really willing to do so. Um, the character really gets at that willingness to pay. And then the the ability to pay is really captured by the other four C's, which would be capacity. So, hey, does this uh, borrower have the the sort of cash flow to pay debt? Um, collateral. So if there's an issue, what do I get? Right. So do I? If there's a bankruptcy, do I have claim on a building or machinery or you know what what's my what's my collateral to this loan? And then conditions, which really is about. It, not ju- not just how likely or how able is the borrower to pay today, but how maybe cyclical is this company? Am I lending money to uh, utility, uh, which is cash flow generative and, and generally doesn't have dramatic cycles, or am I lending money to a coal miner, uh, which is going to dramatically change from a credit quality perspective relative to where we are in an economic cycle? So what? So people look at that in evaluating a corporate bond versus a municipal or government bond, how should investors uh, choose which one to put money into? Sure. Well, the nice thing about um, about investing in a corporate bond is, at least in the U.S., this is not always true globally. Um, and, and at Thornburg, we're really investing globally. But at least in the U.S., the willingness to pay on corporate bonds is not really so relevant. Um, other countries or generally generally uh, legal entities that are governments can kind of change the rules on you. Uh, but the rules are tougher to change for a corporation. So typically you have to worry less about, you know, are they willing to pay? You have a contractual obligation. But once you look at look beyond that, I think it's very important to consider what what is what kind of company are you lending to? Is it a cyclical company or not? Um, how much leverage are they putting on to their business? Is it going? To, is it a lot of leverage relative to their cash flow, or not very much? And I think a combination of those two things um, says, well, how how likely is this to default? 
after that, you say, well, if there is a problem, if it all goes bad, what are my, what's my recourse? Where do I sit? And that's where collateral comes in. That's where um, where you are in the capital structure comes in. Obviously, if you're first in line, you're more likely to get money back than if you're last in line. The most popular corporate bonds today are the high-yield bonds, the junk bonds, which have done very well. Uh, do you think that that's a good place to be putting money, or is it more risky than people – uh, are expecting for the kind of returns they're getting these days. Am I allowed to say both? Um, <laughs> you can say both. <laughs> I think that there are interesting uh, opportunities within the high yield marketplace. Um, it's quite a varied market. Almost by definition, these are smaller companies uh, because if you're a very large company, the rating agencies tend to give you a, an uplift. And, and again, remember we in our discussion of rating agencies, you know the reason something's labeled high yield or or investment grade is on on the the back of the rating that this this analyst rating agency analyst is giving. So sometimes I can dramatically disagree with the rating and and perhaps buy something that the the marketplace is discounting because of its because of its uh, because of the credit rating agency's opinion. But in general, what I've seen more recently is some bad behavior entering the market across all of risky fixed income. So while they're Definitely individual opportunities, and we spend most of our time here at Thornburg looking at individual asset opportunities. Broadly, you've seen such a, a tremendous desire for yield, no matter where where it comes from, that you've seen a real downgrading in quality, and, uh, or rather, you've seen a whole lot more risk and a whole lot less reward. So it's something where I, the the flows, the the, the desire for yield. Um, has, has really decreased the supply of it, the relative supply of it, um, in accordance with you know economic theory everywhere. Indeed, okay. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Brady. Uh, he's a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at Thornburg Investment Management, and he's just come out with a new book called Income Investing: An Intelligent Approach to Profiting from Stocks, Bonds, and Money Markets. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. 
To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Brady. Uh, He's a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at Thornburg Investment Management and author of a new book called Income Investing. Welcome back to the show, Jason. It's terrific to be here. You have a whole section on stocks for income, and particularly those with rising dividends. What is the advantage of buying stocks with rising dividends compared to all the bonds we've been talking about so far? Sure. Well, I think it's not only an advantage uh, for stocks relative to bonds in some cases, but it's actually a relative advantage of stocks to other stocks, to non-dividend payers. And that is that if you consider over a longer time horizon, and certainly an investor that invests in stocks versus bonds or has more stocks uh, versus bonds has to consider a longer time horizon and has considered the potential for more volatility. But if you have that time horizon and that capacity, what you see is stocks tend to grow their income over time, right? So, for example, the S&P 500 paid something on the order of uh, $0.03 cents a share uh, in 1970, and now it pays something on the order, not quite, but coming on 30 Dollars, there's 30 cents a share, excuse me, so 10x. So it went from $3 on a $100 S&P to about $28 on, what are we today, 13 something, 13.81. So it's not that the yield increased dramatically, in fact the yield went down, but because stocks grow their earnings over time, the dividends on the S&P 500 itself went up. So you can have a stock that doesn't change its yield, but definitely grows its income over time. And I think that's something that people miss when they focus on a number like yield. So what are you looking for in companies that are raising their dividends? Are you looking at payout rates or earnings growth? Or what are the qualities of the stocks that you like that we're going to be consistently raising their dividends? Actually, those are two very important ones. So the first would be the payout ratio would be how much of their earnings are they paying out to shareholders? Um, if the company is paying out a very small amount to shareholders, it's not much of a commitment. Um, at the same time, you don't want a company paying out more to shareholders than it actually is making. Uh, so something that allows them to reinvest in their business somewhat is is important. But but more crucially, again, I think people get focused on what is the payout today and this how that could grow over time. If you have a company that's growing their income over time, they're actually and they keep their payout ratio the same. They're actually going to grow their payout to you over time, and that can really change a lot of uh, dynamics in a portfolio. So, you know, the the trouble with fixed income. Uh, it's right in the name. The trouble with fixed income is that income is fixed. If you can actually get growing income over time, uh, that can solve a whole bunch of problems for an individual investor. So uh, what are some of the industries that you like today that have dividend growers that you think are well-positioned? Sure. So uh, most people would look at um, high-dividend yield uh, sectors. Maybe you'd look at uh, utilities. Uh, you Maybe in the past would look at financials. Um, one that people would generally look at that I actually like today is telecom. Uh, but I think what you need to 
look beyond is those particular sectors and look for income on a much much more global basis. Um, the U.S. is the worst place in the world to look for income. Um, anywhere else in, in developed market outside the U.S. is better. So if I can go to Australia and get the average income that's almost 3x uh, on a yield basis, uh, what is available in the United States, then the sector list that I'm looking at uh, for significant income actually grows really dramatically. So I enjoy it. I think telecom's pretty interesting. Um, it's yielding globally in the high single digits. It's growing in the low single digits. That combination gives you kind of a slow double digits total return. That's pretty attractive to me, um, particularly given it's a relatively defensive lower beta sector. You, you talk in the book about uh, comparing Windstream against China Mobile, mm-hmm. uh, which is high current yield versus a growing yield. What are the pros and cons of doing one strategy versus the other? Well, I think what I was trying to get across there was that while both investments were better than the S&P 500 over the time period that I was looking at, um, so it's not a question of, you know, is, is, is current yield terrible? Um, current yield is great. Uh, in fact, I think people underestimate the power of yield compounding and income compounding. Uh, but what's more interesting is not so much a really high current yield, but that growing that growing income piece. Uh, and I think when you're able to grow an income stream and grow an earnings stream and find dynamic businesses that are able to pay you as a shareholder along the way, that that ends up being a much more powerful story. So is this a place where it would be better to be in a mutual fund where you have a diversified portfolio, or do you think getting individual stocks with rising dividends is the better way to go? Well, you know, consider the source. Obviously, since I run uh, funds, then I have a bias to say, <laughs> say it's funds. Uh, but what you're, what I'm able to do in a fund structure is really get a global, um, in this case what I'm doing in the investment income builder, um, is get a, a global universe and a, a research universe and a, and a holdings universe, which has some names that you might have heard of. Um, Microsoft is an, as an example. And some names you might not have heard of, which uh, are, are reasonably sizable. Um, one of our largest holdings is Telstra, which is Australian uh, telecom company. So I think what you get is a breadth of holdings. Um, and as long as you're comfortable with the strategy, uh, of the growing income piece over time, I think that uh, a fund can can really broaden and, as you say, diversify your exposure. You have a whole chapter in the book on banks, particularly as a case study in rising dividends, but that, that hasn't worked out so well lately because you had TARP come in and all kinds of limitations on the way they could pay and raise their dividends. So what, what should people make of banks today as a dividend-raising uh, phenomenon? Yeah, the purpose of that uh, chapter was actually to illustrate the the real problems you can get into around um, investing just around around yields. So banks, the the illustration of that that chapter was that banks are effectively big levered uh, bond funds. And how did they get into trouble? Well, they didn't really understand that there was significant downside uh, to their holdings, uh, so they had very very little capital or another way to put it would be very, very high leverage on these holdings that they considered to be almost riskless. Uh, so the idea is really to get people to understand that there is significant risk in all their holdings. Um, the nice thing about equities in general is that equities can go up, um, in theory, infinitely. The trouble with fixed income is they really can't go up infinitely. You really have your, your total return over your holding period is, is really limited by your income stream or your yield. 
So banks, when they say, well, we're going to buy these yielding securities and lever them dramatically to get the significant return on equity, um, we're really discounting uh, and underappreciating the risks that were inherent in their fixed income portfolio. So where do they stand today? Where do the banks stand today? They've gone through, they've taken a lot of losses, but they've brought in a lot of capital. Are they much more secure uh, investments today? Uh, well, I think that as an investor base, we're more aware of, of the issues, so that's helpful. Um, we certainly have more priced into the bank's um, share prices than we did five years ago, uh, which is good. That's a good thing. Um, I think it really the answer to your question really varies by geography. So in, in the U.S., we have a fairly active capital markets. Um, banks' assets as a percentage of GDP is, is slightly below 100%. Um, in Europe, you have a much you, banks are much more important to the economy. In other words, most lending is done via banks as opposed to done through the capital markets. So, in various con- countries in Europe, bank assets to GDP is four times as large as it is here, which means the problems in the banking sector are much harder to resolve, and without significantly uh, hitting the the economy as a whole. And I think. What you saw in Japan, which was much more akin to the European situation, is that working out banks um, is really is really challenging. It's a really challenging thing to do, and it takes quite a long time. And, and in Europe, we we or they have really not um, not done uh, a significant amount of work relative to the total work that needs to get done. Very good. My guest uh, during this hour of the Money Answer Show has been Jason Brady. Uh, he is a managing director and head of taxable fixed income at Thornburg Investment Management. Uh, the name of his new book is Income Investing, an Intelligent Approach to Profiting from Stocks, Bonds, and Money Markets. Uh, his website is thornburg.com, T-H-O-R-N-B-U-R-G.com. And thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.